Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who's been dealing with addiction and mental health issues for several years. I'm walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. Just a quick announcement, in a week or so, I will be changing the name of our podcast and changing the focus of it just a bit. So don't worry, I'm still going to be here every week, just it's going to have a different name. And I will make sure that if you are on our mailing list or in our Facebook group, that you will be on top of all of these changes. It's all good. And I hope you all stick around. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Today's guests are Lainey Liberty and her 23-year-old son, Miro Siegel. Lainey Liberty is a best-selling author, international speaker, teen mentor, world schooler, partnership parenting paradigm advocate, and mother. In 2012, she co-founded Project World School with her son and has lived in community with over 100 teens in over 20 international locations. Wow. Wowie kazowie. All right. Lainey founded Transformative Mentoring for Teens in 2020 in response to the growing need to support teens' mental health. And she just released her first book, Seen, Heard, and Understood, Parenting and Partnering with Teens for Greater Mental Health. I am reading that book right now, and it is right in line with what we've been advocating here at Safe Home, that parents do their own work and partner with their kids instead of being an authoritarian over them. We'll be talking with both Lainey and her son, Moreau, about unschooling and world schooling because they lead a fascinating alternative life, but over the top of everything is the partnership that they've nurtured, which allows them to both live as their fully authentic selves. You can watch Lainey and Moreau in a TED Talk called Unschooling, Making the World Our Classroom, which I will link in the notes. Thank you for being here on Safe Home, Lainey and Moreau. Glad to have you. I'm so excited to be here. And I love that this podcast was started with your, your teen son and four families. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess we're both mother-son pairs, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I love having our young adults and teens on the show too. I think their voices are so important to listen to. And I think a lot of times parents just stay in their own little bubbles talking to other parents all the time, where if we can hear from those of the kids that are able to share their insights like you do, Miro, and like my son does, I think that's so critical. So thank you for taking time out of your busy life to be here with a couple of moms. <laughs> so where do you guys live now? So we're both in Guanajuato, Mexico, which is in the center of Mexico, north of uh, Mexico City by a couple hours. Okay, good. And do you live together or separate? No, we, we live separately. Okay, very good. So she's been here a little bit longer than I have at this point. But when I moved down here, of course, the invitation was extended to me. Like, yeah, I have a room here for you. Yeah. Of course I do. And I told her, I love you, but I can't live with you. So <laughs> that's good to know. And there you go. <laughs> I don't live with my parents anymore either. So yep. it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's great. It's funny, but Lainey is in front of this very pink, like folk Mexican looking wall. And Miro looks like he's in an office somewhere. So <laughs> totally different places. It's so funny. Our two homes are so different in style. Yes, you've totally nailed the style of my home and his is very modern. But yeah. we're, in the same t we're in the same town and Miro does make his trek up the hill to my uh -huh. house okay. often to do his laundry. 
after uh, my my weekly pilgrimage uh, for clean laundry. clothes. Yeah, ah, excellent. Well, good job. Very good. And you both were originally from LA, right? Correct. And that's where I am. So that's cool. And before you started world schooling, which I'll let you tell about how that began, but were you always kind of on the alternative side of things? Were you homeschooling already? Were you kind of one of those outside of the mainstream parents all along or? Well, I was always sort of, you know, outside of the conventional parenting, but not in terms of education, which is kind of crazy. You know, I've always sort of self-identified as an anarchist, which meant that, you know, I live by my authority. But for some reason, I sort of just gave in to the idea that it was somebody else's job to educate my child. And I didn't know any better. And I never questioned that. And that really became a big part of our journey, which was to pull apart those beliefs and a lot of other beliefs that we had that we inherited either through culture or through our own upbringing and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and look at that stuff and really challenge what we feel or felt was true or not true. It's so interesting that everybody just goes like sheep to the educational system. We're just like, okay, I guess this is what we do. And <laughs> exactly. so, yeah, well, very good. And I know from reading your book that you grew up in a kind of a controlling household. Is that why you think you're a uh, anti-control person? <laughs> you're, you're talking to me, not to my son. So, yes, yes, yes. Lady, yeah. I should direct you. I'm talking <laughs> right. to you. Yes, yes, yes. yes, definitely. I did. I grew up in a very, with a very controlling mother. I would say she's probably borderline narcissistic as mm. well. Mm. Although I doubt she's been diagnosed. But my experience of her and growing up was in a very controlling home mm -hmm. and very authoritarian and perhaps, all right, probably very true. Part of the reason why I question authority is because I, I grew up yeah. in that uh, okay. environment. Well, and also specifically when it came to parenting, I can't tell you how many times over the years my mom had told me, yeah, I'm raising you in the exact opposite way in which I was raised. Right. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And so like, yeah, you do have to understand where these things come from and it comes from personal experience, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. People either redo what they grew up with or they go, Whoa, I'm not doing that again and switch it up. So it sounds like you did the switcheroo. I did, but I will probably get into the men mental health aspects, but anytime you choose to do the opposite and haven't healed the original trauma, mm. you're still functioning on the same shadow or the same trauma. It's just another aspect mm. of it. So the first inclination that I had was not to parent that way, but that is not enough. That wow. simply is not enough. You really have to dig deep and figure out why those patterns are there and why, why mm. you know, those things are impulses inside of us yes. and, and learn to sort of integrate and heal those wounds or traumas because they don't go away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's also just not enough to define yourself by a negative, right? Or to define, for mm -hmm. example, your parenting style by a negative. To say, I want to not do that to my kids kind yeah. of leaves a lot to, you know, there's still a, a lot there that needs to be explored and fleshed yeah. out, right? You're just yeah, saying yeah. what you're not going to do, but what are you going to do, right? So we kind of have a problem with defining by, by what we aren't mm. sometimes. That's very true. And I think that, I don't know if it's been proven, but from my experience, at least when my kid hit adolescence and started kind of getting on the struggle bus, all of my stuff got brought up. Oh, yeah. So if parents don't have their own shit figured out by the time their kid is 
going through their identity struggles, you're going through it with them. And that's not ideal. It would be better if parents could work through their own shit from their childhood, maybe before you get pregnant or before you adopt. But otherwise, I actually kind of disagree. I say it's important to normalize um, sort of the internal inquiry and uh-huh. understand your patterns, but kind of working your shit out before you have kids. If you wait till that, you'll, you'll never. Oh yeah. Yeah. Maybe the human race will die out that way. You're right. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) They'll be like, Oh, I'm not done yet. I'm not ready yet. Okay. But just being aware of it and being aware that when your kids are driving you crazy, it might not just be them. It might be your own stuff that's being pulled into the equation. Oh, it is. Yeah. It not, it, well, might be. It, it, it absolutely is. is. Yeah. You know, kids have the uncanny sort of talent to touch on our wounds. And if yeah. you're not actively aware of your internal worlds, you absolutely can play out the same patterns. I mean, Miro knows he knew how to trigger me and I knew when I was triggered. Yeah. But one of the biggest gifts that I gave him, which was really a gift for me, which was I gave him permission to tell me any moment that I was acting like my mother. And that slapped me out of (laughs) doing, you know, running those patterns. Ah, Did you ever use that just to bug your mother or was it only when it was really true that she was acting like her mother? No, I would say when I really thought that it was true because I knew how much she hated it. Like I wouldn't just say it to say it. But if okay. I felt like it was the truth, well, okay. she needs to hear it. And then that- she, and she, yo, you hated that. You always, hated it. yeah. <laughs> and I, I find it funny you say I gave him permission to do it because <laughs> so, you know it really doesn't feel that way sometimes. Like that, that was not how I would describe it. I it was, it was just something I did because, yeah. yeah but <laughs> but you didn't throw it back in his face when he did that. You said, "Oh shoot." I'm doing that thing again. You know, I I could feel my dysregulation. I could feel getting defensive and either I got defensive and said, no, I'm not. But most of the time it really sort of slapped me out of where Mm -hmm. I was. And I just sort of clammed up and kind Uh, of into an internal process of trying to regulate. But I trusted him and I still do, obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, that he wouldn't throw Uh such a, a, you know, sort of jagged weapon at me yeah, just yeah. for fun yeah, yeah it's yeah. a low blow i mean yeah you, know. is. <laughs> you would never do that good job good job <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about world schooling because you guys leave a very unconventional life and people probably haven't heard of world schooling unless they're really in an alternative education kind of environment right yeah what is it how did you get started with it what prompted it so I'll, I'll tell you briefly the beginning and then I'll hand it over to Miro because it's our story. It's not just my story. So being a single parent and living in Los Angeles and being a business owner, I was affected by the 2008 economy crashing mm-hmm. and it really affected the business that I was running, which was a marketing, branding, design agency. Mm-hmm. And near the end of 2008, I saw my clients going away one by one. And I recognized that I would not be bringing my staff back after the holidays. So that was one aspect or one element. The other was, again, being a single parent and doing everything that I thought I was supposed to be doing. I was working. I was, you know, trying to build a life for us and Mm -hmm. following that American quote unquote dream. Mm -hmm. But it left me really sort of stressed and without time and 
what I was really doing was missing out on my son's childhood. Mm-hmm. And the most common phrase my then nine-year-old son would say to me was, mom, you're always working. You never spend any time with me. And oh, it was true. Yes. And Ooh, that so, yeah, it hurt. So <laughs> you want to tell the rest of the story, darling? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, something something had to give. And one night, everybody had already gone home because the office was at our house in LA and at our loft. And everybody had already gone home and it was just the two of us sitting amongst all of these computer screens. And my mom turns to me and she says, let's have an adventure. Let's go, let's, let's do something. It was just this moment, a breaking point, like something had to give. Mm-hmm. And she proposed a backpacking trip. We would go off for a year, just travel together. And then the idea was maybe we would resume our normal life thereafter somewhere in the States or maybe relocate somewhere else. But that was kind of the idea. And being a nine-year-old kid who didn't spend enough time with his parents, I really just was very deeply unhappy. Like I hated the school system. My schooling experience was like, just really not a great fit at all. And I was emphatic about it. I said, yes, like that sounds awesome. Let's go for it. Uh So we you know, preparations were set underway. In about six months, we had given up and sold everything. We'd rehomed our dog. We had just completely like uprooted our entire life there. And we set off. So we started traveling. And in that first year, we were really traveling kind of like tourists. And we were traveling Mm -hmm. off of, you know, the savings that we had from selling all of the things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so it was kind of a different mentality. But about eight months into that first year, which was supposed to be our only year, Mm -hmm. we realized that this was more than just a temporary foray into the world. This was going to be like a a lifestyle. Uh And neither one of us really wanted to return to a sedentary lifestyle. I didn't want to return to a public school or a traditional schooling environment. My mom was also not very keen on that. That that entire first year, I was completely self-directed. There was no curriculum. I was learning as we were traveling. Uh And eight months in, in this backpacking trip where we were supposed to have traveled from Mexico to Argentina in one year, we had only made it as far as Guatemala. And eight months in, we realized this is it. This is going to be our life. And we just restructured. We reprioritized everything. And at this point, I've spent more than half of my life outside of the U.S., Wow. So what he's forgetting to tell you is I'm somebody who, I mean, you started to read my book. I love using tools. Tools to me are really important. I need to have scaffolding or some sort of foundation to help me understand how I'm moving around, you know, or navigating certain things. And so one of the deals that my son and I made before we set out was let's try and say yes to everything. Let's just try and say yes. Because I had spent so many years saying, no, I have to work. For me, it was really powerful. And he knew that he was all on board of of the saying yes part. And when he asked me (laughs) eight months into the travels, can we continue doing this forever? (laughs) I kind of, yeah. Yeah. So yes, had to be the answer, but we both came to the same conclusion and it was what it was. But I know you're anxious to talk about partnership parenting, Mm -hmm. but to give you the background of how it all started and then all the years that we spent traveling and living nomadically together 24-7 in partnership, Mm -hmm. that 
really is the basis of what I wrote about in the book, which is partnership parenting and what that looks like to live in partnership and not to be the boss of anybody and to walk side by side versus me pulling him or him pulling me. It was our lived experience and it was very intentional. Yeah. Now, just for people that aren't really entrenched in the homeschooling or unschooling world, that first year, were you unschooling or how did you legally, because don't you have to legally school your kids? Like, how did you do that the first year when you weren't really already a homeschooler? I'll let you answer the legal <laughs> part of that question. Okay. So, I mean, it's the implication that somebody has authority over how I'm raising my child. Uh-huh. At the time in California, I disenrolled my son and I said, uh-huh. we are going to homeschool. Okay. And what state are you living in? We are not living in the United States. Therefore, nobody had jurisdiction uh-huh. over us in terms of legal requirements. Uh-huh. Now, if I was, I don't know, somehow obligated to the state system and going back and was concerned about my son getting some sort of accreditation, uh-huh. then probably I'd have to jump through some hoops. But uh-huh. It was very, very, it was like second nature for me to say, okay, well, you don't have authority over us. And why do I need to follow your rules? And I knew intuitively that one year of travel, which is what we had planned on, would give my son way more than oh my gosh, ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you weren't dragging workbooks with you, I don't assume. Your education was on the road, like real life. Yeah. Museums and experiences and interactive language, language. Oh politics my and geopolitics, economics, geography. What was not covered? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't even tell yeah. you because everything was covered science, art, humanities. Mm-hmm. And there are people that unschool but just stay home and do it. Sure. Right. But your version was they call world schooling now. Were you, did you invent this or was it already going? Well, we didn't invent it. We didn't invent learning from the world, but we sort of popularized it by giving it a name Uh, and talking about it. And you mentioned in the intro, the TEDx talk that we did, Mm -hmm. we did that in 2016. Mireille and I were on stage together. Mm -hmm. And I think you were 15 or 16 at the 16 at the time, I think. Something like that. Yeah. And we were talking about learning from the world and all the richness that the world gave us from an educational perspective. And so we popularized it. We didn't quite invent it. We're often credited with founding the movement. And we've done a lot of work within the movement to build community and to support one another. And, you know, we both facilitate world schooling trips. And also one of the things that we added was world schooling conferences. And we're about ready to host our 10th mm-hmm. world schooling wow. conference. So we've been at this for a while. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a good way of putting it. I think saying that we popularized it is fair. I hesitate to say that we founded the movement because it's like, you know, people have been doing this for a long time. Yeah. But but we there's not there hasn't been at least historically now there's more because there's more people that are have yeah. gotten into it. Yeah. But historically in world schooling there haven't been as many people that were intent so intent on the community building aspect of it. Uh-huh. And really that's where I mean my mom went crazy with that. Let me tell you for years like that was her life. It was building this community and bringing it to other people and and like creating a real open and inclusive space, mm-hmm. which I do think that you can credit the current world schooling movement 
you know, you can, you can trace it back there. I can yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are often credited with founding it. I'm not sure like Miro said, if we are the founders, but we are often credited. Okay. That. So yeah, we were passionate about it. It was a lifestyle of parenting and partnership and learning from the world. And actually I became a learner too. I was mm. proudly learning alongside of my son and yeah. we were doing it in partnership. And so I loved talking about it. I loved writing about it. I loved sharing these stories and facilitating others to step into their empowerment so they didn't have to feel like they had to follow some sort of convention that yeah. wasn't in alignment with what they yeah. actually wanted to do. Well, that sounds awesome. I wish my kid was younger and I would have done that with him if I could have, but I don't think my life kind of lined up that same way. But <laughs> how about this? I would have loved to be the student in this world schooling <laughs> endeavor. That would have been awesome. We're both living in a country that's not our home country. Some people call it third culture kids or yeah. that sort of thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Whenever you're traveling, you're learning, right? Even when you're not traveling, you're learning. Yeah. I mean, you can't help but to learn. That's right. Because we have brains and brains are learning machines. And just by virtue of them functioning, we're learning. Yeah. So Miro, can you walk us through, like, you're 10 years old, you're on this one year of world schooling. What does a day look like? And how does that partnership happen? Like, how can a 10-year-old know what the heck you want to be doing? I mean, how did that look in real life? Hmm. It's difficult because I, I don't really think we had any average days, right? Oh. I think every day was very very, very different, very distinct. But there were a couple of elements that would go into it. I would say the first thing that is important to understand when I was 10 and or 10 to 11 to 12, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. left the US and I had been schooled my entire life up until that point mm-hmm. in a you know more conventional way. And one thing that really came up pretty heavily was the de-schooling process mm-hmm. for me. So I had to unlearn a lot of behaviors and priorities. I mean, you take a 10-year-old who's been schooled their entire life and you just drop them into a situation and say, okay, you are free to make your own decisions now about the way you spend your time, about your bodily autonomy, about people, the company that you choose to keep, you know, stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, there's going to be a period where you're going to overcorrect, right? As a kid, uh, I remember in those first couple of years, really the thing that I was most interested in doing was, you know, and I'm sure this is going to come as no surprise to most parents of 10 year olds. I'm sure it's still the same now. I just want to play Minecraft. I was going to say video games. I want to play (laughs) games. and I have the time now. This is always stuff that I've enjoyed. I just want to do that. And so I would do that for a lot. I would do that for long extended periods of time. But there was always this understanding. This takes me to my second part, which I want to talk about, which was, and this is going into the, the idea of being raised in a partnership paradigm. And there was always this implicit understanding that I could do that so long as my mom could do the things that she wanted to do. Okay. Right. Uh-huh. And a, a lot of that, for example, in our situation was as we were traveling, my mom discovered a deep love for pre-Columbian history in Latin America. So every time we'd roll into a new region, she would say, here are all the archaeological sites, here are the museums, I want to go, I want to do this, I want to do that. And so I could say no, and I could create conflict, or I could recognize what I have been able to do with my own time and say, okay, well, this might not be possible if the other person in this relationship isn't getting what they need, right? Uh And so 
I hesitate to say that it was kind of framed in this like transactional way, mm-hmm. but it kind of was. I mean, that's kind of the way that the, the mechanics of it worked, right? It was this implicit understanding that the both of us needed things and that those could only happen if both of us were getting what we needed. So instead of your mom yanking away your electronics and mm-hmm. saying, no, that's too much time or that's not what I want you to be doing. She let you play Minecraft until your eyes bulged out. Yep. And you're no worse for wear. <laughs> no. And you know what? Eventually. You probably got sick of it eventually. Yeah. Right? You get bored of it. Yeah. You want to do something else. You you take on other interests and hobbies. And it's just, it's, it's called being a kid yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. find discovering the things that you like and, and growing up, you know, it's like, yeah. we don't need to really worry about that stuff too much, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. And I was really tapped into allowing him to self-regulate. And if he didn't know what it felt like to overdo it, and I didn't feel it was unhealthy or dangerous. I mean, he had 18 hour video game days, some days, but at the end of it, he came out of it after a couple of years going, okay, I'm done. And he always maintained a deep passion for video games. And I watched so much Minecraft. Oh, <laughs> I'm actually glad I don't watch Minecraft anymore, but it was me sharing your interest mm-hmm. with you the best I could mm-hmm. without judging it. And also by letting me draw my own limits or mm-hmm. not draw my yeah. own limits and just overdo it, it changes the relationship of that responsibility, right? Because now that that it's personal. I can't say, oh, well, I didn't play this or I played this because my mom did this. It was, I had the opportunity to make these decisions. And if I was feeling a certain way as a result, as a repercussion, uh, a consequence of those decisions that I had made, well, that was on me. There was no way I could turn around and mm-hmm. say, well, that's because of you, <laughs> you yeah. know? So it, it definitely changes it into like a personal responsibility. Yeah. Yep, um, I can see that. You don't have anyone else to blame. You can't say, my stupid mom won't let me or my stupid mom made me. (laughs) You would, I'm stupid, but you know how kids do. One of the things that I realized really early on in my parenting journey was they're only this age for one year, you know, the the numeric age for Mm -hmm. one year. And it's a stage that moves into the next stage. And by virtue of working really, really hard for the first nine years, I missed a lot of those nine years. I missed that. And so, okay, so 11 and 12 look like a lot of video game playing, but oh my gosh, he's a better person for it because his 11 and 12 were not filled with authority and control. They were filled with support and love. And that looks very, very different because in essence, as parents, we're nurturing a relationship. We're nurturing a connection, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and a lot of times parents, if they get triggered or they're worried about what's happening now, it's very, very, you know, single-sided. It's like, okay, Mm -hmm. in this moment, you're really annoying me and I have judgment. How does that nurture a connection? Yes, yes, yes. Let me just pause real quick. Miro, is your mom's audio like coming out fuzzy? Yeah. And it wasn't earlier, so I don't know. It it just started raining. It's pouring. It's oh, that's pouring. Rain. I can hear it outside my house. I thought it was static. It's no, I, I recognize it. Wow. It's raining over. Um, I love that you use those words nurturing and acceptance and 
those are words that we use over here in our family all the time. It's actually Joy's favorite word is nurturing. When I say, what, what do kids need in your situation? He goes, oh, we need to be nurtured. You don't punish us. You know, if you find a vape pen in my backpack, don't punish me. Don't scream at me or take stuff away. Figure out what is going on. What, what are you needing? What's happening in a non-judgmental way? So therefore you stay connected. The, the connection is the most important piece, not exactly doing exactly what I wish you would be doing. Because that's my, my trying to form you into a certain thing. And boy, along this way, I've learned to let go of my idea of what I wanted our son to be, you know, with our journey every day. It's a little bit more. Okay. Okay. He's going a different direction than I would wish, but it's okay. Sounds like you guys have a plus on that nurturing and acceptance. Yeah, definitely. I I think that's probably one of the largest problems in parenting is the idea of, I guess, just like ownership over over the kid's life. You know what I mean? So. I feel like, you know, obviously as a parent, you have responsibilities and you're there to, yeah, to nurture them, to protect them, to help them, to support them. But you shouldn't really have a stake in, you know, what your kid chooses to do in the end, because at the end of the day, I mean, that's their decision, right? It's it's their own life. It's these are choices that they have to make for themselves. And in that one of those choices is who they want to be. Right. And I think that that's one of the largest things that, or one of the things that causes like probably the most amount of conflict yeah. between parents is just, it's unfair. It's unfair to say that. I didn't do anything the way my parents wished I did in the end. I did at the beginning. I went to school and did the things they wanted me to do, but I am not their religion. I'm gay. I'm vegan. I mean, the list goes on and on of ways I am different than they wished I were. But we've all learned to live together in, you know, not together, together, but live with each other and accept one another. And when I think, oh, I wish Joey would do blank. I think, well, I bet your parents wish you were not gay or I bet your parents wish you whatever. And how does that feel to be on the receiving end of wishing to be different? That feels horrible. So Jan and I are really working hard on just accepting what is in front of our face and just loving him no matter what. We love him, whatever is going on, because he's our son, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, we want to raise children that have agency, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. because ultimately, their life is their life. Right. And control does not create connection. Control actually, you know, severs connection. Absolutely. And it's not our place to judge what's right for one person based on your own particular, you know, worldview or preference or whatever. We learned a lot about worldviews and perspectives by traveling. And we got to see this in action. And that kind of external world sort of lessons helped us to internalize through these real world examples of how we could see the same thing from a different perspective. Can you give us an example of ways you saw the same thing in different countries or different cultures? Yeah, we always tell this one story. We were in this tiny coastal town on the coast of Ecuador, and we did a little bit of volunteer work with one of the local conservation centers there that was centered around conserving the whale population, Ah, the local whale population. There were a lot of conundrums that we had to 
navigate because not only were we dealing with the the conservationists, we were also interacting with educators, you know, who were working in the the local school systems and that they were educating the kids in certain ways. There were also, we were interacting with the fishermen, you know, their entire lifestyle, all their families supported by, you know, this industry, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can't really turn around and say like, okay, well, one of these is more valid than the other, right? You just have to absorb all of them and at least understand them to give yourself better context, to give yourself a more detailed and complex view of the world, you know, because how can we say to that fisherman and his family that that entire trade is, it's just like, you can't, you can't do that. You can't make those kinds of judgments when you're out in the real world. And, and so we were kind of experiencing that on a macro level and, I think that definitely did translate as well to a deeper understanding of self and, mm. you know, these kinds of contradictions that exist within all of us, within our own internal worlds. Mm-hmm. So I think that travel is a very powerful metaphor mm. and a very powerful vehicle for learning these things, for exploring yourself, for learning self-growth. The other thing that really aided in both of our development as human beings is in our family, we normalized talking about everything. We talked about our emotions. We talked about our beliefs. We pulled apart the politics and our opinions about certain things as as we were experiencing them. But it, mm-hmm. it was our journey was grounded in deep communication and the trust mm. that even if we disagreed and we do disagree still about many things, there is space for mm-hmm. respect, uh-huh. there's space for understanding that there are different perspectives. And again, experiencing worldviews in such a really practical way became an analogy for how we managed our interpersonal relationships. Uh-huh. That's great. Instead of trying to make him do what you want him to do, you guys are are individuated and respectful of each other. That's amazing. That's so not the regular traditional paradigm where the parents get to decide. (laughs) I just want to say as a caveat, I will hold up the sign saying I'm imperfect, you know, and, and I let you know that I fucked up many times and that I was judgy and you know, I did hold expectations, but it wasn't the norm, but I am human. So sure. those things are a part of it, but we have the language yeah. to unpack that. Well, I think that in of itself is the most powerful parenting act, right? Is demonstrating to your kid that you are not a God, demonstrating that, you know, yeah, you can make mistakes. And that's a good thing because you're preparing your children for a lifetime, which will inevitably be filled with their own mistakes too. We're never going to not make mistakes. Right. But how can we best navigate it when we do? That's right. What resources do we have? And having a parent that is like willing to admit and to make the situation better. Mm -hmm. It just shows that it's okay to fuck up. Yeah. And you're going to. (laughs) It's actually good to show that you can fuck up and here's what to do when you do that. Absolutely. Here's the steps we take and we're not totally losers. If we mess something up, we just get help and fix it and whatever. Move on. That's such great lessons. Miro, in what ways has your world schooling experience and your partnership with your parent, how has that impacted you? Now you're a grown up. I don't even know what you do for a living, but, or maybe you just still travel around. I don't know. How has that created your sense of self? Hmm. I mean, it's a difficult question 
just on its face because of course it's the only life that I know. I suppose. Right. So I have, I have no real like basis for comparison. Huh. <laughs> I mean, I've got some ideas. First of all, so I, I am working, I work online. I actually am working as a, as they say, educator. I like to call myself more of a facilitator for learning, okay. uh-huh. but I work with kids. So I work with kids between the ages of nine and 13 who are also self-directed. And, you know, it's my job to essentially just delve into whatever they want to learn and learn it alongside them and demonstrate how they can do that uh, better. So we do a lot of that stuff. So we have an online business. It's really great. I actually start my next term in about a week here. I'm really looking forward to it. And what's that business called? And this is called The Hub. Okay. So The Hub, you can find it at thehub.community. It's a a really great program. So I guess in some ways, that's another example of like my lifestyle leading up to this. I don't have any credentials. I don't have a GED. Uh I have been completely schooled, I guess, or educated. I've learned, let's say, outside of the system. Uh But that has not barred me from having these experiences and having these opportunities Uh either. I found programs that were a natural, perfect fit for me. I reached out. Mm -hmm. This job, I said, hey, I don't have these credentials, but I have a lifetime of experience with self-directed education. This is my own personal experience. I have a lot that I can bring to the table. I have experience, all of these different things. And it was a perfect fit. And I've been very happy there. So I think that, of course, yes, the travel has changed me. The travel has influenced me. I think the travel has specifically made me more open-minded. At least it's changed my perspective of the world to be much wider. Yeah, I bet. And these things can also bring their negatives with them as well. Having such a wide view of the world can also be challenging because you see you see more and sometimes that's too yeah. much. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. I bet if you try to be friends with someone that never left their home village or whatever, you would have very little to talk about. It is challenging. I I would say if anything, and I don't know if I would even call this uh, an inherent negative, but I, I would say this experience with growing up on the road and growing up very internationally has very much alienated me from most other Americans specifically. I bet. So that's been like a really large part of my own personal experience. Mm. I don't think I could ever go back and live in the States. I tried. I couldn't hack it. Okay. Everything comes with its pros and cons, but overall, I'm very happy with my with my upbringing and yeah. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I almost said I wouldn't trade it for the world, but at, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you got the world. That's right. You already got the world. Is that your dream is to continue working in education or facilitation of self-learners? I hesitate to make future plans. Uh-huh. That's just kind of who I am, I guess. Who knows what the world is going to look like in five to 10 years? Who knows what I'm going to look like in five to 10 years, what I want to do, what, where I'm going to be. I'll plan the next year ahead. But beside Uh, that, I have some ideas and some dreams and, you know, but that's just, that's just stuff that kind of floats around. I'll, maybe I'll plan the next year out, but it's. Gotcha. You're not aiming for the gold watch. (laughs) No, no, that's definitely not a goal of mine. No, I, I like education. I could see myself working with kids into the future. That'd be cool. I also could see myself, I have a couple of other ambitions, a couple of other ideas, things I'd like to pursue. I don't know what's going to pan out. I don't know what's going to stick. We'll see. It seems to me that you have the self-confidence that whatever it is, you'll do fine. Yeah, I'll, I'll be able to do something. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent place to be. And absolutely learned resourcefulness through our years on the road. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear, Miro traveled and lived nomadically from the age of 9, 10, 
all the way up till, well, now, you know, <laughs> we stopped traveling together in 2020 when the world shut down and we sort oh. of stopped doing, we co-founded the company Project World School together where we were bringing teens to different places mm-hmm. in the world for these retreats. But mm-hmm. obviously in 2020, we had to stop. Yep. So that's a- And then I think you said that you built something else when that happens. Some other online support group? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was that? I continue to work with teens. So I I teach mental health courses for teens and I Mm -hmm. mentor teens. And I also produce mental health trips for teens. Ah, okay. Very good. And if people wanted to get a hold of you to find out more about those groups or the world schooling or to find your book, what's the best way to find you both? Well... Projectworldschool.com is a good way. From there, there are links to transformative mentoring for teens.com, worldschoolfamilysummit.com. I also have a link tree where you can get my book and you can find information about all of the trips that we do. And as Miro said, he's working with another company, not his company or not our company, uh, but that's at Mm thehub.community. Nice. Is there anything else that you would like to say that I didn't ask you about? I would say if you're a parent and you have a teen that is struggling, the best piece of advice that I can give you is before you respond in reaction to whatever's going on, before you speak, ask yourself, make the habit of pausing and ask yourself, is this thing I'm about ready to say or this thing I'm about ready to do, is this going to be something that's going to connect me or is it meant to coerce the person into doing something that I want? So if it's connection-based, then do it. But the habit of pausing and asking yourself connection or coercion will help you really get in line uh, with how you are interacting with one another. I would also say kind of along the same lines, but I would say, I mean, of course, families are relational, right? Like there is no one member of a family that exists in a vacuum. So when you pass these judgments or you come up with these ideas about the prescriptives, the, my son should do this. My daughter should be in this Mm -hmm. place. Right. I'd rather like take a moment and ask yourself, what kind of responsibility do you have in that? Right. I mean, if somebody is struggling in your family, it's a holistic thing. Mm -hmm. The family also, you are going to need to address, right? And sometimes it's things that you will need to address within yourself, within your partner, within, you know, whatever. But the prescriptives oftentimes are, it's just a way that we can shift blame. And I think that that is probably the last thing that you really want to do. I mean, that's that's how you push people away. Yeah, blame never feels good. That's for sure. Yeah. And our goal is connection, people. Yeah. That is the goal. Connection. So is what I'm going to do right now going to connect me or push my child further away? Mm-hmm. And gosh, whenever addiction's on board or mental health is on board, you do not want to be pushing your kid away. Mm-hmm. You want them in your orbit so you can be helpful and a resource for them. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And again, I write about this a lot in my book. My book is called Seen, Heard, and Understood, Parenting and Partnering with Teens for Greater Mental Health. And I touch on things like strategies for connection and unpacking and discovering your hidden agenda as a parent. Mm -hmm. Are you really trying to manipulate, even though it may be flowery or sound good? Right. Yeah. Also, how to deal with things like mental health and challenges and addictions and, and how to create space where both of you can be partners in this journey. Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, you two are a great example of that partnership. And now that Miro is an adult, you're still partnering, but it's adult an adult, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would actually go on record to say that I feel like our relationship now is the best that it's ever been. Ever. Right. Yes. You know, and that's and that's something that you want to hear, right? Yes. From you know, okay, your kids in, in their 20s now. It's a, probably a pretty good sign. Like it's a sign that you did something right, at least. Yeah. That they, yeah. they still want to be a yeah. part of your life. And exactly. You know, I, does not I heard someone recently say, once your kids 18, if they ever talk to you, it's because they want to. Because after 18, they don't have to ever talk to you again. So if if your kids come in toward you and they're over 18. Something you're doing is right. <laughs> so that's great. Well, I, I love what you guys are doing. I love your book, Lainey. And I can't wait to see where your life takes you, Moreau. It's a grand adventure. I really appreciate you guys coming on the pod and sharing your interesting and lovely life. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to connect with you as well. And thank you for the work that you're doing as well. It's so important. Thank you all for listening. Please share this episode with anyone you know that has teens or young adults. Anyone who might be into homeschooling, unschooling, de-schooling, world schooling, anyone who is looking for a little extra support uh, or some inspiration from a mother and son doing partnership parenting. Find Safe Home Podcast on all the socials and on YouTube. And we have a Patreon account if you'd like to support us, patreon.com slash safe home. I also just started a support group for adoptive parents. So if you or anyone you know, is an adoptive parent or is involved with adoption, come find me. I'm trying to gather a bunch of us together to help out. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you all for your support. Thanks again, Lainey and Moreau for being here. And Lainey, Moreau, and I want you to all stay Stay safe. safe.